a podcast one production. Questions. I'm Adam Spencer, and this is The Big Questions. On this episode, I sit down with Neil Armstrong. Possibly not the very first Neil Armstrong that pops into your mind, that guy landed on the moon. He's no longer with us, but this Neil Armstrong is, and he's amazing. Amongst other things, I got to ask him, what's it like to DJ for Barack Obama? One of the world's coolest dudes and great mixers, Neil Armstrong, my guest in The Big Questions. All right, thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about your childhood. I've read a few things. Uh, I was born and raised in New York City, uh, a child uh, of public education in New York. Mm. Um, I also kind of grew up in the church. I would say probably that's where I was probably introduced to a lot of music um, and even hip-hop, I would say. Um, Oddly enough, I, I went to a church that was pretty racially diverse which is i don't know how it is in in oz but um that's pretty odd here yeah uh you know usually you have like all black congregation all korean congregation but Church, mine churches was, tend to to go yeah, along so tribal yeah. like tribal lines yeah. yeah okay um but in my case i i mean it was really like the united nations up in there i, <laughs> I had there was a pakistani family uh i think originally you know a lot of the people there were caucasian but just these, you know, offset groups just joined, you know, and, you know, I think fortunately I grew up in a, one of the, I guess, quote unquote, good (laughs) Christian groups that were just really inclusive. And like I said, there was a Pakistani family, the Filipino family, a family from Estonia, uh, just so, uh, there was, um, you know, at least 30 to 40% were um, African-American population, so it was just kind of this uh, really a, a melting pot. You know, what, what America is supposed to be is what I got exposed to at a very young age. I, I read somewhere you said that there was a, there was a piano in, the, in, in yes. the center of one of the rooms where you grew up, which was well, also, I, tip, you've, you've got a Filipino yes. heritage as well, and you, yeah. you described that as a typical Filipino thing to have yeah. a piano. Yeah, I think uh, music is really a big part of my, you know, my, my parents' culture. Uh, and yeah, every... Filipino person I know has a piano in their house. Yeah, so I grew up around that music, and like uh, oddly enough, the person who I remember kind of really introducing me to hip hop in its most current form that I I uh, you know latched onto was uh, was my pastor's son. Okay. Oddly enough, and he gave me like an NWA. <laughs> like their album, and that's a bit edgy for a pastor's son to be I carrying mean, I around. I guess that's back how it day. is, though, right? Like the, you know, past. Like I, I forgot what you know. Just rebellion, right? Because you're under a, a certain type of parenthood, and so yeah. Like the movie Footloose, because it's the daughter, yeah, who's, of the pastor yeah. who says they can't dance in town, yeah. who falls in love with Kevin Bacon, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, kind of something like that. So, <laughs> what did what did your mum and dad do, Neil? My father is oh he's retired uh he was an administrative law judge for the state of new york Mm. and my mother uh she like you know the general term would have been i guess a social worker but in particular for a lot of her life she worked with um uh rehabilitation of uh people who had cerebral palsy and Mm -hmm. alcoholism um 
and my sister's also a lawyer. Most of my family went to a school called Columbia University, which is mm. a big deal. It's one of the prestigious school. Yeah, um, I didn't. I went to a school called Cooper Union, and I went to college on a full tuition scholarship. Everyone who goes there gets a full tuition scholarship. Uh, and when you were at college, you were going down the chemical engineering route, weren't you? Yes, I do have a degree in chemical engineering, which fellow nerd. Oh yeah, very much so. Um, but I don't really remember any of it. <laughs> I just remember it being very difficult and, uh, you know, convinced that if I actually did pursue a, a career, I would possibly blow something up. <laughs> were you already DJing on the side when you were at college? Because you, you describe yourself as falling in love with hip-hop during the golden oh, yeah. era. So what do you mean by the golden era of hip-hop, and how old were you when it first really came to you? Well, the golden era of hip-hop, I think, universally is accepted as, I'd say, like 1988, starting from 1988 to maybe 92, 93 was like the first golden era. And, uh, it, you know, some people don't make that division and just, just say it's up to like maybe 90. Six ninety-five. So, so for some of my less hip-hop savvy listeners, okay. who, who were the big names at the time that, that really cracked so the, the uh, mainstream? The first golden era guys, I would say, are like uh, De La Soul, mm-hmm. Public Enemy, Slick Rick, Rakim, uh, Eric B, like Eric B and Rakim. And Run DMC? Run DMC was before the, the golden era, the mm-hmm. quote-unquote golden era. But Run DMC was obviously one of the biggest hip-hop groups in history uh one of the proponents of the culture uh you know the 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 whole fashion thing they were the first non-athletic entity to ever get sponsored by a athletic company which Mm. was of course um adidas probably how you guys pronounce it over (laughs) here we say adidas um so yeah uh golden era would have been then the later one or depending on who you speak to Mm. but golden arrow would also be like a tribe called quest and you know a little like that's a little later um maybe like hieroglyphics the crew which is like souls of mischief and those guys maybe they would be included in the golden era i mean the last thing we want to do on the big questions is cause any controversy over the definition (laughs) of the golden era why was it what why do you mean that was a golden or the golden era i think it was possibly the point before money became highly involved mm-hmm. uh before it became very commercial which is the next era which is they call like the shiny suit era when when you know puff daddy was showing up in videos with biggie smalls you know dancing in a shiny suit that mm-hmm. would be the next era after the golden era i guess and i think it was just this really beautiful point where uh, socially, there was a lot of stuff going on. Like Reagan was president at the time, so there was, you know, uh, you know, they, that was when they started putting the parental advisory stickers on on uh, mm. on CDs, and it was just a more quote unquote conservative viewpoint at the time. And and and, and hip hop music was one of the was the art the forms that really pushed, pushed back against opposite, it. And you yeah. had some very controversial stuff like F the Police and yeah, yeah, and with, all that with sort NWA, of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, money, it wasn't commercial yet. So a commercial artist at the time would have been like a Madonna, you know, and they were not Madonna. They were not Paul McCartney. They were not, you know, Cindy Lauper. They were not 
Hmm. That it was a, a very underground movement that I mean became what it is today, and even like so, still genuinely music of the streets and, and appreciated by. I would think so it, by a very select group of people. Yeah. I think the and this is uh, when I guess you had a, a more a tastemaker like that term tastemaker actually meant something hmm. you know like if there was there was a radio show in particular called um, Stretch Armstrong and Bobito there there was a lot of them but they were the ones that like were literally kind of the gatekeepers of the 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 culture hmm. uh they had on their show Jay-Z before he became Jay-Z Nas before he became Nas Biggie before he became Biggie Big L before he became Big L like all these people who would go on that show and they basically said, these are the guys you should be paying attention to. You know, not they didn't say it, but that's what they were saying to the listeners. All of these people became huge, massive artists. And they all, like, uh, there's a, they have a, uh, a documentary out actually called, uh, I don't even know what it's called, <laughs> but look up Stretch Armstrong and Bobito. But yeah, they they were the the ones, like the gatekeepers who, decided you know not not purposefully it just happened that way you mm. know they had a very good year and they you know it just galvanized like this underground culture as opposed to today uh, you're there is no gatekeeper the the gatekeeper is youtube the gatekeeper is spotify so all that is is metrics so if it just so happens these kids out in Kansas who have nothing to do with the culture have probably do not know many minorities uh, if they decide, wow, we're going to like this certain artist because, oh, well, he got purple hair and um, I like what he looks like, I like what he's saying, well, we're going to give this guy 20 million views and his metrics say to everyone else, well, he got 20 million views, so he must be what's hot. Hmm. And now those are the gatekeepers. So people who have very little to necessarily do with the culture are the people who are driving the force. And another interesting thing about the technology of today is that if you want to teach yourself to spin the turntables now, there would be oh, you can. Ch channels on YouTube where you can look. Absolutely. When you learnt back in the day, how did you how learn to, to spin? Um, well, a lot of it was uh, like artisanship. You know, um, you met someone or like, I, you know, I would go to a club. So, you know, as a, as you said, I'm Filipino American. I didn't, I grew up in Queens, but I didn't grow up with Run DMC. You know, I, I grew up in like a, a neighbor, a Jewish neighborhood, actually, <laughs> oddly enough. And, uh, was there a big Jewish hip hop scene no. in Queens? <laughs> no, but later on when I guess hip hop became, there was a, a point after the golden era where hip-hop became i guess a little nerdy to yeah. for a lack of a better term and you know i remember there was a mc named like paul barman and i believe he was jewish mm -hmm. I, um you know which I, honestly the cool thing that i loved about hip-hop for me was despite what the world wants to create which is a lot of division I had never experienced that in the hip-hop community. It was a unifying force. It was a very extremely unifying force. They were like, I don't care what color you are. As long as you're cool, I don't care what religion, religion you are. As long as you want to party, we're going to party together. Hmm. That, that, for me, was a very essential part of hip-hop and... You know, my makeup growing up, you know, I told you about my, my church, which was hmm. like the United Nations. I just 
thought that was a normal thing. I, didn't, I never really realized there was a difference until I got a lot older. So when you're, what, you would just watch other experienced yes, DJs essentially, and just go home and copy what they did? Um, kind of like we would watch these videos. Back then it was videos, uh-huh. right? VHS videos. And, you know, you had to be, you had to work hard to find this information. If mm. you were interested you couldn't just go on YouTube and type hmm. and, and, and learn everything. You'd have to know someone and get the video hmm. and copy the video. <laughs> well, Keith Richards tells a great story in his autobiography, The Rolling Stones in London at the time, and they'd, they'd be sweating on the latest Chuck Berry record. Yeah. And, and, and as soon as it was released, they'd order it from the States and it would take forever to get there. And, and Keith says he can still remember the, the day the new record would arrive. Oh, and, yeah. and you'd all run round to the guy who was in your band who owned who had, a record player. Yeah. And to be honest, that guy was probably only in your band because he owned yeah, a record yeah. player. <laughs> but they'd, they'd, they'd put this vinyl on and they'd listen to it and they'd stop it and, and turn it back and listen and just trying to get an individual chord or little, how does he get from that note to that? And what's, yeah. the, what's the little riff there? And just studying this album yeah. because it was the only link you had to Chuck Berry and yeah. listening and listening and practising and practising off this one vinyl. It sounds similar to what you were oh, doing with no. the videos of the great DJs. Who were the guys you were watching and learning from? Well, at the time there was, you know, that term DJ has morphed into a, a larger you know, format, probably these kids, if you say a DJ to most kids, they think of like a Steve Aoki or a, mm-hmm. you know, a Tiesto, Avicii, Avicii uh, Calvin you know, Harris. Yeah, Calvin Harris. They think of that as, oh, as yeah. DJs. Um, I, I knew I knew my 13-year-old daughter's taste in music would come in handy at some <laughs> stage of my podcast and it's finally all paid off. There we go. But, you know, in our day, like uh, Wolfman Jack was a, was a DJ, hmm. but he just talked. He was talking. I yeah. mean, technically, if this was back then, you're a DJ yeah. it, without the music. You yeah. know, you're a DJ, a disc jockey. Um, but in the hip hop scene in particular, uh, you had it, it. DJing wasn't an accessible art form the way it is now. Like, really, today, because of technology, anyone can go online. Anyone can download the same exact music. Hmm. You can get programs that mix for you and call yourself a quote-unquote DJ. Mm-hmm. But back then, you had to buy equipment, which was expensive, and you have to know where to get it. Then you'd have to find the records, which are not accessible. You know, it's hard to find these records, just like you told this story about, you know, Chuck Berry. Like, how do you get the record if the artist is in California and you want to play it over here? Like, mm. you can't get that record because it's not over here. You know, where do you find these records? And so that was the DJ had a lot of power because they're the only ones who could get these records who could find these records mm. who did this the who went through the records to study it you know like now you can download a song you can scrub through it find like the best parts that you like or not like or whatever you couldn't do that if you wanted to hear a 45 uh, like an album you had to listen to it for an hour <laughs> just to figure out which songs you liked yeah and to maybe just find Thirty seconds, seconds of one song that would be a bridge between two other songs yeah. you had in your mind. So, yeah. I mean, it's all become digital these days. What was it in the vinyl era when when you got serious? Like, how many actual records did you have to carry around? Did you own or have to carry around with you as a uh, to a gig to be to able to gig. participate at that level? Uh, you would essentially in New York have to DJ. What by the time I came up you would DJ sometimes from 
9 p.m. to like 4 in the morning. Yeah. So you had to have six hours worth of music. <laughs> Now, a really good DJ could compact those into what we call crates, two crates of yeah. records, and each crate holds maybe, I don't know, like 45 to 60 records, I yeah. believe. So if you were really good at how to, you know, how to do it, you could do that in, with two crates. But if you were not that good... I don't know, and you really wanted to play a lot of music. I, I remember going to uh, um, Canada, and the DJs there, because they they like to just play like just sixteen to twenty seconds of a song. They would DJ. They would bring ten crates, so and they would just line them up behind them. I we wouldn't do that just for you know. Uh, because we we couldn't we like we we would dj in a room like half the size of what you're sitting in so where are we going to put 10 crates uh we were djing by ourselves, so we 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 can't break our backs so we Mm. we, you know we choose the easiest thing two crates at at the most and we try to compact it but that's going to the gig what actual records we have is i've never actually counted but any real dj has a lot of records <laughs> I, i mean i uh, well, i for sure well, had well, over twenty thousand for sure over twenty thousand yeah easily i'm po- i'm pretty positive and i'm sure there's that's low for a, a a dj now now that we're in the digital age i wonder because i remember talking to a sports photographer about the move from film to digital and when digital first became an option that was technically feasible and I, i'm pretty sure i remember This guy used to photograph at the Olympics, mm. and the Sydney Olympics in 2000 was the one where the first people were starting to use digital, but a lot of the guys and girls were saying, no, I'm going to stick with film, it's yeah. better. And by 2004, everyone's digital. completely digital. <laughs> yeah. Is there a trans... And, and, and a lot of people will say, your vinyls sound a bit better than your, yeah. you know, listening to stuff on CD or digitally downloaded... Is, was there a fight at the time oh, when yeah. digital came along? Two million percent. Yeah and, yeah, and and what was that like? And where did you sit on the spectrum? And when do you, when do you finally go? No, it is just now digital. Oh, uh, well, I mean, so that happened for us. I would like to say maybe two thousand three. I yeah. guess is same when sort of time as the film. Probably, battle. yeah. Well, basically, once MP3s became a viable, you know, option that and uh the first company to kind of introduce his digital djing was uh they made a, a product called final scratch this was just some kids who wrote it probably on like maybe bos maybe okay. and uh eventually another company took that idea and created a a nice product and that was called final scratch and that was native instruments and then the current reigning group Uh, called Serato, which is out in New Zealand. Hmm. They, um, they created a piece of software with a company called Rain that was became the industry standard. Where I stood on it, I thought it was amazing. I, I was one of the honestly, I was one of the early adopters, mm-hmm. and I knew then that this was where everything was going. However, I also am an older school DJ, so I still play vinyl. I still have much love for that side of the culture well you've got twenty thousand um, records you've got to put them to use <laughs> yeah you know i never sold my records i i just you know i have a connection to that type of stuff and um but i guess you know what is evolve or die i don't know pick 
pick whatever nice little cliche thing that you could say. Well, on, on the topic of evolving or dying, your career evolves. You you get into mixtapes. Now, for yeah. people who aren't familiar, a lot of us of my vintage remember making a mixtape. If, yeah. if you were going to go to a friend <laughs> at a party's a party at a friend's house, you get your cassette tape. Yeah. Um, our, our young producer staring at me, got no idea what I'm talking about here. <laughs> cassette tape, and then you'd record your 15 favourite songs back to back, and you'd go to the party and oh, don't worry, I've brought a mixtape. Yeah. Boom. But what what what's what's mixtape as a as a subculture of, of, what of I hip-hop do, yeah. and DJing, well, uh, where does it fit in? And then we'll talk about I the mean, amazing it's, it's, effect it had on your life. It's not that different than what you just said, you know, but a DJ's, especially hip-hop DJ's abilities were to kind of um, just take hip-hop music because, it, you know, it's very structured. It's usually 4-4 and the, the tempo is all relatively similar and, they would make these not just song like a tape where you play the whole song they would just play the best parts of the song mm. and they would blend them together right so when you dj you can actually kind of take two songs and put them together mm. um using a literally a mixer right so you can mix one record with another record you know and uh that's what a lot of hip-hop djs started doing and early on that was what people got because there was no hip-hop record label there was no uh you know radio like just like that underground radio show but people the djs would either tape record their live performances where they would dj with an mc and they would sell them in the Mm. park or later on they would actually make you know go home record these hour two hour sets as if they were like at a party and this is what i would play this and or this order and they would sell those and because you're they've, they've become a signature of your you are for world me, yes. renowned for your mixtapes and, and i would it, like to think so i hope so well, what, <laughs> wasn't it through hearing some of your mixtapes that the collaboration with jay-z began yeah yeah i would say so um but yeah, so how's that happening? Are you sending them to him in an envelope, going, no, "Please listen, please listen." A, a no, common friend, or what happened there? No. Uh, well, we did have a common friend, um, but basically, I started making mixtapes a little later than you know what I was talking about, like people recording live. You know, yeah. I'm talking about that was like in the beginning, way beginning of of hip hop. Um, later on, the mixtape culture kind of took a what would be the equivalent you know like just like rock has different spectrums you got your prog rock era you, yeah. your punk your post punk your blah 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 right I think mixtape culture kind of had a little interesting little thing like that as well and uh, by the time I had gotten around the mixtapes were at a, a lazy point where ba- basically they were just playing songs on yeah. the, they weren't trying to mix and trying to do anything creative as we say in Australia they were phoning it in yeah just phoning it yeah, in yeah kind of like that but I was inspired by a different school of, of a DJ, and I started to make these elaborate mixtapes that were very like theme based. So one of them was called Bittersweet. So it was like about a relationship, and if you listen to it, like it was supposed to be very cinematic. You're supposed to see this story unfold. There's and, an arc that goes yeah. from the beginning to the end of the actual the, yeah. the selection of music. Yeah, you know, boy meets girl, boy falls in love with girl. What you know, boyfriend oh. cheats on girl or Bitter girlfriend sweet. cheats on boy. And, yeah, it goes all through the whole thing, and you know, and, and that's just something that I, don't know, I hope a hundred percent of the people in the population of the world knows about. So it ended up becoming their, you know, 
their soundtrack like because mm. uh, you know it couldn't everyone can relate to that anyway the one story that i heard initially that connected me to jay and this is way before i i got to work with him was uh that uh there was one of his assistants had given had let him hear my mixtapes and uh this got told to me by another person named jeff staple so jeff staple is a really big person in the whole streetwear culture uh-huh. uh um just the very high up guy and oddly enough me and his initial like big store like when i became a dj his first uh thing his first project called staple designs started as well so he made my logos blah blah blah. anyway this this guy named ashley nichols comes into staple store so they had a retail store at one point and they were one of the stores that used to carry my mixtapes exclusively and he bought all of them and he was like man these mixtapes are amazing um like I've played them for Jay. He loves them. He went as far the story that got told to me, you know, so he didn't tell me this. The the Jeff and this guy Nico who is um his partner at the store, they tell me that he says that Jay-Z heard one of my mixtapes and wanted to kind of copy that thematic idea that I did. Yeah. And the way I would join music very often was by using sound clips from mu- from movies and blah 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 and if you listen to jay's black album in one of his songs what more can i say he actually uses a, a clip from the movie um gladiator so they tell us this story we, we kind of all laugh it off like mm-hmm. we're just like whatever this is ridiculous or my friends make fun of me you know <laughs> basically they're like don't don't gas this guy's head up. Like you gotta be kidding me. This in Australia we say don't pump up his tires. Yeah, don't pump up his tires yeah. too much. So and I didn't really think anything of it, but uh, whatever. Maybe five years later I end up DJing for Jay, and I for sure I can confirm that he had heard my stuff, and the people at Rockefeller Records had heard my stuff, and uh, at the time, yeah, the people who were listening to my music were all people who were coming into power i guess yeah. uh so my friends who listened to my stuff started being like one of them was like the tech editor at vibe magazine the other one was like a high up at when mtv started their internet division so right place right time yeah so they would put my mixtapes on like the mtv server so everyone would hear my stuff and they'd be like what's this and oh that's neil armstrong and so my my work pro- proliferated to people who would have a say one day you know uh another one of my friends who knew my stuff worked for adidas so i ended up becoming getting sponsored by adidas oh we'll get to Um, that we'll get to that but let me ask you when when jay-z reaches out mm. to work with you how does that does he call you himself does he one of his peeps contact (laughs) you does someone send a message how did you how did that all come about the actual the actual contact there was a one of our one of my friends, her name is um, Vashti Kola. She used to work for Jay at when he was at Def Jam, and Jay was looking for a particular type of DJ that could work with a band. And I have a background in like turntablism, so oh. I I have had I had DJed for a jazz band already by that point, and so there's just a kind of a different musicality involved in that, and so I I was part of that 
world. Um, basically, who started that was a, a DJ named A Track, who is pretty big today. And mm. you know, he he did Fool's Gold. He, I believe, he produced or at, at minimum he put out the Barbra Streisand song from a little while ago. That mm. uh, you guys would know that song. It just says Barbra Streisand and has like a whistling. Yeah, yeah. So, um, a track came from the same like we we come from the same world like the battle DJ world, and I was, you know, at the time I was already doing a lot of stuff with labels uh, you know like with adidas with uh there was a magazine or uh, online magazine i guess online site called hypebeast i was blogging for them and basically i was part of that whole culture and vashti was approached by jay and jay was like i, I need someone to dj for my next tour and vashti was like well you, you should work with neil he does blah 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 this that and the other and that was kind of it i got an email on a Wednesday and by that next Monday I was DJing in front of like 10,000 people. So and when <laughs> when 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 you're working with Jay I mean how do you compare the you, you, Glastonbury in front of 120,000 people Probably. Beijing Olympics Obama inauguration how do you rank them? Oh uh, I don't know. <laughs> it was kind of like all kind of a blur because everything was happening at the same time. Mate, for, a chem- for a chemical engineer who taught himself how to turntable, <laughs> um, you would have been pulling down, what, $50 a shift when you started? That's You've come a long way. Uh, Yeah. Well, if I ever actually became a chemical engineer, I think at the time they were saying like I would, I, I just wouldn't be able to make more than like 50K a year, which, you know, when I was like 19, I don't really know what that means. But um, or I, I would be like, oh wow, fifty k, that's great. <laughs> but uh, I've done way more, you know, kind of just messing around and DJing. More big questions with Neil Armstrong in just a moment. So let's let's talk the Obama inauguration. You're the first, but so for people who don't understand, when a new president gets inaugurated, mm. they have a, a big celebration. Yeah. They throw a little party. There's some very official staff. They, they take the oath of office. There's that scene in uh, House of Cards and everyone's hoping whoever sits closest to the front and all that, the seating plan is like <laughs> a big wedding. But then they have a little party. Yeah. You're the first turntablist ever to perform at a presidential inauguration. What, I what, believe what, so. What was that yeah. whole... Event. How, and can you remember when you found out you were going to be doing it? Uh, yeah, but like I said, everything was just a blur. Like, um, so I started DJing for Jay in two thousand eight, which is when the you know everything happened. I, I I'd like to say that we vote sometime in November. Yep. Um, and you know we weren't sure, obviously, if Obama was going to win. We had been doing get out the vote events so we did one in cleveland with lebron and then we did one in uh i'd like to say atlanta i think we did another get out the vote because it's fair to say in the choice between mccain and obama the hip-hop community went swung pretty strongly behind obama yeah I, I, you know what? It's hard for me to say a definite, but I mean, you know, if you're just going by optics, sure, <laughs> I would say, I would say so. You know, um, what was the what was the event like? What was the inauguration gig like? Uh, 
Nervous? I, oh no, I wasn't um, because I had a very you know my my role. I'm copying this saying from a, another documentary I saw somewhere, but but basically, like you know, Jay Z is the part. If Jay Z is the party, I'm just a confetti that's falling from the sky. You know, I, I have a very huh. okay. Well, are you allowed to let me into a secret? Was Jay Z a little bit sweaty before performing for Obama? Honestly, um, well, if you watch the performance, he messes up, which is really rare. Yeah. He, it's really rare. So yeah, I would say he from was nerves, probably, just the and the I would excitement say it was, at all. Yeah, I would say it was. Just, you know, being able, especially for, for Jay, like, to be in that position, to be able to perform on that big of a stage and for that prestigious of an event. Hmm. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know if I could, <laughs> I don't know if any normal man wouldn't be, like, a little, like, oh, my God, yeah. I don't believe this is happening. For someone like yourself who's, and if you don't, I'd, I'm not prying here, so please don't tell me any more than you're comfortable, but it's it's well documented that, that Jay-Z and Beyonce had a bit of a rocky period there, and they're two people for whom that sort of stuff is played out in front of the world more than it would be for... 99% of all other people. As yeah. a friend of theirs, what was that like to watch or is it just part of the world they're in that it's that that, that, that everything they do is... I'm not trivialising what they went through, but everything's part of a giant circus and you just roll with it. You know what I mean? Mm. Well, I mean, I don't know if I would use that term friend and I'm not saying that in a bad way. It's, yeah. you know, I, I was his employee. Yeah. <laughs> like to, Associate. Yeah I, was, yeah, I was his employee at best and we only really worked together for like two years, you mm. know, so. Um, and that's just a different, you know, people would always ask like, oh, like, did you hang out with Beyonce? And I'd always be like, well, do you hang out with your boss's wife? Like, <laughs> like you, is that something you do? Like, <laughs> And there, there are of course people that I know. Like actually, one of my um, one of my close friends ended up becoming her personal um, photographer for yeah. all the tours. So yeah, he hangs out with them, you know, because it's a the type of job he does is a kind of it's relevant for him to kind of be around them all the time. Mm. And he's also like a really fun dude. So yeah, but my job was, you know, I was there to DJ for him yeah. when we were on stage. So it wasn't like we hung out a lot and. I would. I don't know if a lot of the other members of the band would admit to something like that, but that that's just fact. Like yeah, yeah. you rarely, especially someone of, of Jay's caliber. Like mm. our job is, unless we're there creating music with him and blah blah blah. Like it's just to turn up, be absolutely professional, get yeah. the job done, and yeah, that's turn it. up the next day. Yeah, you that type did. Of thing. On the topic of being on tour, uh, fans of yours would know those who follow you on Instagram. Uh, you, you went on a tour with your dog Poe. Yes, I did. And this was <laughs> this was beautiful. I appreciate that. Thank you. Do you mind telling the story to any yeah, sure, anyone listening sure. to know who is not familiar with it? This is lovely. Um, you know, I'm. I guess I'm getting old now, and the dates are starting to to blend in with each other. 2015, 2016. I believe so. Yes. So, I guess, and I had a dog. I had a dog named Poe. Uh, he was kind of a jerk, <laughs> <laughs> but he was my jerk. And unfortunately, he got sick. And I would say this was in 2014. Uh, long story short, we found out that he had a bunch of cancerous tumors and he, he had liver failure. So the liver failure was the one that kind of was like, 
there's no cure. Uh, he's going to die. And when I asked the vet, like, like, what do you mean? Like, what do I, do I have a day with him? Do I have a year? She was like, it could be days. Huh. And uh, basically, because of my job as DJ Neil Armstrong, I, I don't have a nine to five. I, I can I travel for work most of the time. So fortunately, my um, partner, um, my wife, Yuko, at the time, also she has kind of a, a she doesn't have a traditional nine to five as well, and we just were like, you know what? If we have days for this guy to live, let's let's live it. Let's let's bring him, let's bring him to the Pacific Ocean. You know, let's let him go swim. You always wanted to see him swim in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah. You said, yeah. I mean, I I didn't, I don't know why. You know, we could have went to like Florida, whatever. And I, <laughs> I don't know. We were just like I, in my head. I just always had this like, yo, you. I think you would love it out here. Let's go. You know, like this is our only chance. We're not gonna have a tomorrow. You know, we may not have tomorrow. So let's just go. And you're gigging and you're taking photos and and Poe's got his own little Instagram yeah, account. And- yeah, and it, it initially we had kind of separated out his thing into a, a separate instagram account just because i didn't want my followers to like just be inundated with dog pictures and be like yes what's this i'm not here for this and um you know it i didn't think it much of it we just did it you know and we did it for purposes of for for our reasons to to document it for ourselves so we could look at it and not really sure what happened but he went from having, I don't know, the, maybe the first day he had 500 followers who were all friends of mine. And by the time he passed away, he had over 150,000. So I guess he his story went viral. Um, well, there's just something beautiful about it. I, uh, I think ultimately what, what it is is that a lot of people know this story, especially pet owners. They, they've dealt with uh, a, a pet getting sick because you know their life expectancy is just not as long as ours so the ch- most likely your your pet is going to pass away before you and most real pet lovers are like i wish i could have had another day with my dog or i wish i had, could have had another day with my cat mm. and we did that you know we did that in spades so not it wasn't just that not everyone can say damn it i'm going to take my dog on a national uh, no, djing not, tour no most people can't you know that's why we did it. I think also because we could do it. Like, and I think that's why people loved it too because they can't do it if you're have a nine to five. If you have kids, if you have mm. a job, like you just can't walk away and just go out. Well, I'm out. I'm gonna go. Like you can't. And we did it. In the process, we ended up just kind of learning a lot about senior dog care. So that was the other component. Most in in New York, one of the vets that I I met actually told us to put him down which Mm. is i think a a more normal pragmatic approach to the situation and you know especially someone who's a vet who deals with a lot of you know possibly death like i I get it you know some people might just be jerks but some people are like look you know i know you love your pet there's other let's be pragmatic and there's other pets out there and your dog might be suffering this and the other but the bar i think had been set so low hmm. like my dog lasted for another year like wow uh past his prognosis and basically initially it, we were just supposed to take the trip and my assumption was that 
he was going to pass away on that first trip, but he didn't. So we ended up pursuing, like, just learning, getting knowledge about how to give him palliative care, like how to take care of him so that he could be comfortable. So we learned about this product called Standard Process that would help with his liver issues. Um, We started giving him, which I had no idea existed at the time, acupuncture. We started giving him laser therapy, water therapy, all this stuff that people had told us about. They were like, hey, we see that your dog is getting tired. Can you do this? Like, have you ever seen this? Have you ever tried this? Blah, blah, blah. And then we, you know, he just started to get older, so he couldn't walk. So now usually most people are like, well, if your dog can't walk, it's time for them to go. But it's not true. Like, I, I guarantee you it's not true. Like, he had life in him still. But what we ended up doing was we kind of, I bought a cart from a place called Costco. I don't know if you guys have Costco yeah. out there, but we got this cart and we were like, you know, he's tired, so we'll drag him around with us wherever we need to go. And then he got kind of known for that. And I, I'll see other dogs bring their pe- their dogs in the cart. Yeah. Eventually, he ended up even getting a wheelchair, which at even at that point, I was like, if a dog needs a wheelchair, That's I think really, it might be time for him to really. go. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, after we got him a wheelchair, which thankfully we were able to find a, a donor, um, another dog who had come back from paralysis with the use of a wheelchair as a re, re, like for rehabilitation yeah. purposes, they donated their their uh, cart. It was called Bug's Cart. Um, the dog's name was Bug. And basically, Poe lived another three months after that point. And I... The one thing that I did learn that was really interesting was, you know, every, a lot of people would tell me, like, you'll know when it's time. Like, you'll hmm. know. Like, if you, and I know that's just one of those weird cliche things, right? But there was a point where my wife had been away because she's um, Japanese, so she went back to see her parents and she came back. And the night before she came back, I, I crap you not, like, my dog I put him in the wheelchair and he would just be walking back and forth um, you know not running yeah. but he would by himself he would I would put him in it and he would crawl down and then I would bring him back and he'd crawl back and I'd be like man this guy's still pretty strong the next day my wife came home and I could feel like the energy just leave him like it, it he, his energy just was not there anymore across the board mm. and it was like Oh, my, like mom's home now. I yeah. can, I can let go. I can go. Yeah. So our doctor who was just a proponent of, you know, just, we happened to have found a great doctor named Dr. Alvarez who was a proponent of like the opposite of like, oh, your dog. I, I know people whose dogs got like, they're sprained and the dog, the vet's like, oh. That's it. Yeah, kill him. Yeah. It's got a cold. <laughs> but, Put yeah. it down. <laughs> yeah. Literally, and it's sad, but no, she was the opposite. She had dealt with dogs because of her, uh, you know, her work as a vet, and she was like, you know, just take a couple of days, three days, see how he acts, and you know, because that's final. Hmm. Death is final, and you don't want to make that mistake. So we take a couple of days, and we're at the point where, like, yeah, you know, his energy is gone. I think he wants to rest now, and but she was like. I'm sorry, like, you, you should realize, too, though, that um, there's no way that he's going to die naturally. He's not in the wild. You're still giving him meds. The only way that he could die is if he st- you starve him to death. Hmm. 
And so we had to set a date for his, you know, his passing, which is very odd. You know, I, I don't know. Yeah, what do you, you know, you already know. What are you doing today? Oh, we got to put our dog down. So we set the date up. Um, it had to be like maybe four days later because um, my, um, because, you know, we wanted our doctor, Dr. Alvarez, to yeah. perform this, uh, you know, the event. And it just so happened that that was, that weekend was the All-Star, the NBA All-Star game, which I work, I do work for a lot. And it was in Toronto. So we were like, all right. Let's take one last road trip. This will be the last one. And then on the way to Toronto, he died of natural causes. Wow. Like we, we were on the road where he wanted to be. And we we stopped just short of the Canadian border. And um, I he had, we let him pee once, once more. And he ate and he died in my arms. And But before he died, he... He took a crap on my sneakers, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. You know, that was, that made sense to, yeah. for him to go like that. I, I said he was a jerk. <laughs> something for you to remember him by. But exactly. there's, there's something about passing with hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers on your way to the NBA All Star Game that is yeah. it's very rock and roll. <laughs> a little bit. It was very, and uh, I don't, it was interesting because I I know I I know there were some people who didn't um, understand how I could just keep moving. You know, yeah. but I guess the thing was, you know, we were we were living the whole time. You know, it wasn't like we were just sitting around in a hospital. Huh. Like we were, we were living it. So what's there to miss? Yeah. You know, we we can't really miss him. I, now I, of course, I do. Just I miss his presence, but it, there wasn't anything we didn't get to do. You've you know? got a daughter now. Yes. If she says to you in a few <laughs> years, Dad, I'm I don't know, I'm tossing up. I could. Part of me really wants to be a chemical engineer. <laughs> Part of me wants to be a turntablist and just live on the road. What advice would you give that daughter of yours, DJ Neil Armstrong, uh, you know what? Lily? What would you be telling Lily when she comes to you for advice? That's a really tough question. Honestly, I don't know what I would tell her. Um, I think I have been a very one of these very fortunate characters who have been able to pursue my my passion and you know make that the marriage of like a finance and art i mm. guess commerce commerce and art kind of work in my favor but it's not for everybody um and it's not fun you know i know people i have my friends who i i have this one buddy that i went to college with who was a civil engineer and we actually both kind of left the engineering field and went into um like corporate IT. Yep. And I mean right now he has a beautiful family. He's <laughs> I mean he makes a lot of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he you know it, I I just know. I we, of course that's one of the things you never talk about yeah. but he owns a lot of property. Like just his financial stability and his family stability is amazing. Every day from and and you know he goes to work and then he comes home. And I think that's there's something to be said about that. I'm never not working, or I'm not working. Like, mm. <laughs> like it, it's every day is a struggle. Um, there's certain people who do not operate like that. Obviously, like those really high paid DJs that you know, mm. like you know, your Avicis and blah blah blah. Um, obviously, Jay's <laughs> operating at a different level, <laughs> but most artists just across the board 
have their day in the sun, and then one day they do they do not. I I guarantee you, if the loneliest monk was, you know, alive right now, he wouldn't be selling out this huge jazz club. He'd probably be performing at a Holiday Inn somewhere in the mm-hmm. lobby. Yeah. yeah, because that's an old art form, and and there's no old timers day across the board. You know, there there are your exceptions to your the rule. You got your Rolling Stones. You got even your Jay. Like Jay's old, you know. And I mean, <laughs> I mean that with no disrespect. I'm old, you know. But most artists across the board do longevity. Not, yeah, there's there is no longevity. But it's, I can say in your defense, when it's Daddy, take your daughter to work day. <laughs> and, your, and your mate's bringing the daughter into the high-rise apartment in the city. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's got to, sorry, you sit here, I've got to go and do meetings. And you're taking your daughter to the NBA All-Star <laughs> game where dad is turning the tables. Oh, yeah. Who's got the coolest dad in the world that day, uh, my yeah. friend? It, it, it could be me. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure LeBron's kids think it's pretty cooler. But, <laughs> but yeah, I I do know all that stuff. But it's... One of those things that, because I've I've had I've done a bunch of talks about oh what do you want to do like what do you what advice would you give to yeah. a person who wants to DJ and nine times out of ten I'm pretty sure I've said something like don't DJ don't do it because I think the the mentality is that oh wow you have such a cool life you have to do this you do that and it's bloody if, hard work no yeah I, yes exactly it's not fun and games for for ninety nine percent of us it's not you know there it's just like you, you're Mark Zuckerberg or, or whatever like oh well all you gotta do is find the next great app or find whatever no that's that's that one in a million like everyone else is working hard it's just like this idea like with the NBA players like oh you there's only one LeBron like all those literally in, in our case in the Cleveland Grandeliers they, they make fun of him it's like LeBron and the LeBronettes like he's the one who makes all the loot he's the one who gets all the attention everyone else is on the bench or and you know like they don't make that type of money. Even the the other people, like they 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 do well compared to most. But not everyone is a billionaire. Not everyone's a millionaire. And I think like the number of people, like all the people who go to like college basketball, who do well in that co- in college basketball, blah blah. It's like one percent of those people make it to the NBA. Yeah. Just that. That's it. One percent. So it's a very tough road to take those that that path and you can but like i said like if you do not have your like your mind right to to monetize certain things and to operate properly you're going to do yourself in very quickly it has been hard work it's been a long road you've worked it hard but you have made millions of people exceptionally happy with your music and I it has hope been so thank you I appreciate thrill that. to meet you and ask you some big questions DJ <laughs> Neil Armstrong thank you for having me this episode of the big questions as always was produced and edited by Alex Mitchell in the podcast one studios series producer Caroline Pegram and the theme music provided by the good people at uncanny Valley If you want to hear more Big Questions Answered, go to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app or look us up on iTunes. I'm Adam Spencer. I'll be back with some more Big Questions soon. Big Questions.